0: I was so wrong uh, in last episode I was so 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 wrong or somehow I gave Paige Pierce the motivation that she needed to perform Um, even though she would have never had the opportunity to listen to my episode I just maybe need to believe that she somehow knew I was talking about her Uh, also Uh, Can we just say for a minute that Gannon Burr is on fire this year? It is absolutely insane what he is already doing and the season is still so young. Hey everybody, what is up? It's Antonio. Welcome back to another episode here on Teach, Play, Disc Golf. I am so excited for today's episode. So much has happened since we last recorded, since I last recorded. And there's just a lot of good stuff to talk about. I need to backtrack some of the stuff I said not. Uh not that I said anything necessarily wrong, but I definitely think I need to talk about some of the things I mentioned in last week's episode, and I am just I got put in my place, <laughs> you know, even though the people didn't even know it uh Paige specifically didn't even know it, but so many cool things happen honestly uh I am glad that I was wrong. I am glad that I got put in my place, so to speak, so I am so excited. For this week's show, we're going to talk about some current events, kind of recap uh, the tournament, the Open at Austin. We're going to talk about what it takes to throw on elevation or throw with elevation. We're going to go over or we're going to disc review of the Lone Star Disc Armadillo. I am so excited to talk about this disc. We'll talk a little bit about the Open at Austin in detail, mainly like how it played out. And then we'll talk... Uh, about the upcoming tournament texas states it's going to be in houston this year so some pretty cool stuff with that that i wanted to share with you and that will be today's show so let's go ahead and let's talk about basically what i led the show with i need to take some things back Well, I don't know that Paige will ever that Paige Pierce will ever listen to this show, let alone this episode. But if you do, Paige, I am so sorry. I did not really think that you were out of your prime. I didn't necessarily know What was going on? But in last week's episode, I talked about how Paige has not won a tournament since July of last year. Now, like I said, there's a lot of players who haven't won a tournament since July of last year. But when your five-time world champ, Paige Pierce, arguably the greatest FPO player ever, it's kind of uh it's kind of shocking that she wouldn't have won something. Since July of last year, so that was definitely something that stood out to me. But you know what? She proved me wrong at the Open at Austin. Paige was playing super, super good. Now she didn't go bogey free. It's it was really hard to go bogey free on that course. Let's just say we'll talk about that. And, uh, you know, later on in the show, I want to focus on Paige here, but she played really good, consistent golf, and I was just really happy for her. I really, really was. um Super happy for her to be back, not only on the podium, but in the winner's circle. Uh, I I hope this is a sign of things to come. I I hope this means that we just have another competitor in the FPO field, someone who's been there for a long time and, and she's making sort of her comeback now, uh, so sort to of speak. I really hope that's what we get to see. I would love to see Kristen and Paige and Katrina and Ella Hansen has been doing real well too. I would love to see them start to duke it out. The other thing that uh, has just blown my mind in the last week, Gannon Burr. We've talked about him a lot on this show, uh, way more than I ever thought that we were probably going to talk about Gannon outside of him winning. Granted, he's won, but we've talked about him a lot with just prodigy Um And yet, he won again. And something that just blows my mind about all this is I don't even know if Gannon's 18 yet. Legitimately. I know he ended the season at 17. I don't know if he had his 18th birthday yet. So, Gannon is USDGC champ. He's won multiple Disc Golf Pro Tour events already. And he may not even be 18. He may not even be allowed to legally vote it is against the law if he's 17 right now (laughs) that gannon can't even vote and yet he is out here slaying these courses just absolutely insane he is so so good i i am so excited for gannon and his future but also this is to me a sign of things to come In disc golf in general, we're seeing it in MPO with a lot of young players younger than 21, 22 years old competing, doing really well, having crazy distance, crazy touch, amazing putting skills on the MPO side and on the FPO side. And so disc golf is just in a really good place. We have a lot of young talent, people who started playing disc golf from when they were toddlers or elementary school You have uh, groups and organizations and foundations like Edge and You Play Disc Golf and the Saki Bomb Foundation, the Paul Macbeth Foundation, and so many others out there that I can't think of off the top of my head. It is just so cool. And I think this is just the the fruit of all those years of labor and work. And I know some of those organizations haven't been uh, around as long as others, but regardless, This is what's going to keep happening when we continue exposing children to disc golf and getting them hooked, helping them just learn how to play, teaching them why this game is so amazing and so much fun. You're going to start having those kids with some incredible athletic ability choose disc golf and start competing like Gannon and so many other young players. So really, really exciting. Um... Let's segue a little. We've talked about, you know, Paige and, and Gannon and their physical accomplishments to winning, doing great things in disc golf the past weekend. But there are two players that both talked about some some mental game challenges. We'll start with Paul Macbeth. I don't know if you guys saw his recent post on Instagram or one of his recent posts. Um came out on Monday, I believe he posted about it. He congratulated Gannon Burr. You know, I you know I know not everybody loves Paul McBeth. I like Paul McBeth. I'll just uh, be upfront about that. I think he is a class act. I think he's great for the sport. I like Paul McBeth. I know some people find him a little off putting a little bit. All right. I think it's great that he called out Burr. But if you kept reading that post in the caption, you would see that he talked about how physically his game feels good. He's healthy. He's not injured. He doesn't uh, feel like he's necessarily putting poorly uh, in the physical sense, approaching poorly, driving off the tee. But one of the one of Paul's biggest strengths is his mental game, between the ears, and that was something that he talked about as kind of it's been a struggle this season, and that's really interesting and also comforting. At the same time and that's because we're seeing world champion Paul McBeth, literally like the most recent world champion talk about struggling to focus be consistent to commit to putts and throws and that just like we are all human when we play this game and we love watching the pros because it's so uh, fun to watch them do just like wild and crazy things with the discs and just making putts and seemingly be confident and committed to everything but then I love this this human side of it where we see that yeah you can be six-time world champ I think even two-time USDGC champ obviously has won a lot still struggles seemingly with confidence at times with commitment with you know um just playing well, having the mental fortitude to push through some bad holes and bad shots. So it's really cool to see that, but I definitely think that explains why Paul is struggling because if we if we look at the grand scheme of his year so far, if you look at a lot of his tournaments minus the final round, Paul has been on the lead card at Waco, open at Austin, I can't remember um, how he did... Uh, Disc golf pro tour weekend, but like the the last two tournaments, he was on the lead car going into the final round. And at the end of the tournament, spoiler alert, he doesn't even finish top five. So there's definitely something that's happening psychologically for him that he's going to have to work out. Similarly, Kristen Tatar for the first time, I think it's, I think the DGPT pulled up the stats since 2021. Kristen Tatar. Did not finish on the podium at a Disc Golf Pro Tour event. Now, this is shocking because that was one of the biggest stats last year. And even when Tatara finished like second or third, she was really seemingly like in contention the whole time for the win. But but this past weekend, the Open at Austin, Kristen struggled. Struggled. And she talked about on Instagram too, and just for, she, she alluded to some things, but didn't really dive into details. But just like old, it almost sounded like old memories and old stressors coming back. Maybe some uh, issues that she had years before or just a few years ago, like with disc golf and confidence and hitting her lines, all of a sudden. Those bad memories started coming back up because it was starting to happen again over and over and over, especially in the final round. Whatever it was, Kristen shared some insight into her final round collapse, but ultimately I am not too worried about her or Paul because I think they are such top tier professionals that they will be fine. They're going to figure it out. They have to, <laughs> they have to, and, and not because I'm saying that and not even necessarily for, for fans and spectators that they have to figure it out, but you don't get to where they are professionally without having gone through this dozens and hundreds and maybe even thousands of times before having those uh, self-doubt, those doubtful thoughts, those questions you don't get to where they are without going through that. Yeah, they've had a lot of success, obviously, to get to where they are right now, world champions. But that's because they've gone through a lot of downs, not just the ups. And so I'm excited to see how they bounce back. I'm excited to see how Kristen performs at uh, uh, Texas States. I, I didn't see Paul's name when I quickly looked through the lineup uh, for Texas States. So I don't know if he's there, but I'm sure... At the next tournament, he will bounce back, and I'm excited for that as well. But let's go ahead and let's talk about me and you a little bit, all right? Let's go ahead and let's talk about a skill that I think is so important, and it's not something that we can avoid. Elevation. I love uh, Philo Brathwaite when he talks about throwing with the undulations of the earth, of the ground, and especially with him and Ian Aaron, he... (laughs) He and Ian Anderson on the mic are just awesome. I love their insight. And something that we see on the Pro Tour and at courses where we are, elevation is a thing. Now, I spent the last five years playing a lot of disc golf in Texas. Now, the part of Texas that I was in, the Dallas, East Texas area, there's not a lot of elevation change. It is fairly flat. But even still, there was some elevation change there were some downhills and uphills and you have to learn how to adjust to those. The way you play disc golf on flat ground is not the same way you play disc golf with elevation. So let's go ahead and let's start with talking about uphill, okay? So, I'm going to try and make all of this as easy to understand as possible, Um, but I apologize if I kind of get in the weeds with some explanations here. So. Throwing uphill, you're throwing up the hill, obviously you're going to pick a disc that you throw. Now, something to keep in mind is that, remember, when a disc slows down, it starts to fade. Even if a disc has zero or one turn, you know, hardly any turn, it will settle and fade just a little bit. So when you're throwing uphill, gravity is pulling the disc down. And so as gravity is pulling the disc down, as the disc is going up, it's going to slow down a lot quicker. Which is why, if you can throw 300 feet flat, it's not that easy to throw 300 feet uphill. Gravity's pulling the disc down. So as gravity's pulling it down, that's making the disc slow down a lot quicker. So a disc is going to fade out. So if I'm throwing a mockingbird, a Lone Star Disc Mockingbird, flat ground, I'm gonna get some turn out of it. If I throw it uphill, depending on the steepness of the hill, I may still get some turn out of it, but it's going to fade a lot sooner, and it's going to fade a lot harder. It's going to crash a lot harder. If I decide to take like a destroyer, or a Firebird, or a Force, or a, you know, I forget all the overstable most MVP, but like a, a dynamic, just like Raider or something, something that has fade. If I throw that on a flat ground and I can't get them to turn, let's say, and I try and throw it uphill, they're going to fade and crash even harder. And so uphill, when you're throwing uphill, think about it like this. The disc is going to slow down sooner and it's gonna be harder to get more distance. So what you want to do when throwing uphill is throw understable discs. An understable disc is going to give you normally more glide, obviously going to have more turn and so the 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 turn and the uphill angle will work against each other in a good way they're going to basically cancel each other out and so you'll get a straighter flight more glide and carry up the hill and then eventually the disc will will slow down and fade and drop but since it's an understable disc thrown uphill you should get more distance. You should have a straighter flight as long as you don't throw it on heiser. Now, throwing uphill on heiser, you have to have super, like really good power depending on the the steepness of the hill. But basically for uphill throw, under stable, and the hardest part about throwing uphill is aiming higher than you normally aim. So, you want to pick your aim point, still keep the nose down, but aim higher because if you aim your normal release point let's say or like your normal uh, straight line when you're looking out your disc is going to just drive right into the side of the hill and you want to throw up the hill so you're going to have to change where you're looking when you're aiming so that's how you throw uphill fairly surface level hopefully gave you some good details there downhill downhill take everything i just said about uphill and flip-flop it a disc turns in a headwind because the 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 aerodynamics, the flight dynamics of it, in in simplest terms, the disc feels like it's actually flying faster than it is in a headwind, which is why it turns over more. That's why you throw a more stable disc in a headwind because it will still turn but have the stability to fight out. Whereas an understable disc in the headwind that already turns is going to turn even more. So that headwind almost makes the disc feel like it's traveling faster than it really is along the plane, along the ground. So downhill is the same principle because you have gravity pulling the disc down. So when you're throwing uphill, you're basically throwing away from the center of the earth, so to speak. Not throwing downhill, you're throwing towards the center of the earth, so to speak. And so gravity's pulling it. The disc is going to be traveling a little bit faster, okay? And so if you throw an understable disc downhill, it's going to turn a lot more than you want it to. So throw overstable discs. Now, I want to just be clear. When I'm talking overstable and understable here, you have to take that with your skill level, okay? For some players, a T-Bird or an FD may not be neutral to understable. Or excuse me, Uh, yeah, for some players, the T-Bird and FD may be uh, neutral or understable to them, whereas to others, those may be more overstable discs, just depending on your power, your form, how far you can throw, that kind of thing. So when I'm saying overstable and understable, think about the discs in your bag and what fills that slot for you. And obviously you'll wanna test this, but what fills that slot for you? So downhill, go and throw an overstable disc, because it's going. the disc is going to feel like it's flying faster, so it'll turn, ideally, a little bit more, or at least fly straight the whole way and not fade out super soon. So you're going to see straighter flights downhill, even with an overstable disc, and it'll fade at the very end. Now, if you throw a disc on hyzer downhill, Depending on the stability, it may still dump and fade out super soon. Or if it's a flippy disc, it will flip to flat and turn. And depending on the shot shape you need, that may be good or that may be bad. But in short, uphill, understable disc. Downhill, overstable disc. Okay, well, Antonio, what about the, the, the slopes that go from left to right or right to left? Great question. Throwing on those kinds of slopes, those kinds of hills is really, really tough. And there are a couple caveats to it. One, what are you better with forehand or backhand? Two, where's the wind blowing? Three, pin placement. Where's the basket? All of these things impact the decision making when you're throwing on a hill that's going left to right or right to left. I have found when I, when I think of it, in my experience on those kinds of slopes, the, the wind is normally at my is normally going with the slope of the hill downwards. I can't think of times where it's normally going up the hill. It tends to not be how air pressure works. It flows down the hill. So you're going to have that wind going down the hill. So keep in mind, now when you're throwing, do you need to work against the wind or with the wind? My recommendation, and I'm not going to get into playing uh, with the, you know, playing with wind in this episode. I'll probably do that next episode since it will be related. But I always recommend work with the wind. You're not going to beat Mother Nature. Work with her, right? So when throwing, on so take that same principle now and with these cross hills we'll call them from right to left or left to right downhill either way work with it don't try and fight it unless you have to like if a basket is situated on the hill kind of thing use the hill to your advantage so what that means is if you're looking at a hill let's say right to left it's highest on the right side lowest on the left side just so everybody's on the same page If the basket is situated in the middle of the slope, let's say, you can do a couple things. You can throw high, so as the disc fades down, it will ride the ground towards the basket. Now the issue with that play is that you run the risk of the disc really flying past the basket because there's nothing to stop it. But you are using the hill to your advantage and you can typically throw a slower disc. Now, if you are going to take the other route opposite and you want the disc to come crashing into the hillside, you want to take an overstable sharp nose disc, i.e. a driver. You don't want something that's necessarily going to glide. You know, you have to have some really good touch and control, but it's much easier to get something to kind of tombstone or like just drop in on edge into the side of the hill and die than it is to finish something nice and flat throwing over the downhill side so slopes from left to right right to left i recommend slower discs to go over the top overstable or sharp nose discs to go over the bottom so that it crashes into the hillside and that's a 101 on how you throw with elevation hope you guys found that helpful um Obviously, you're going to need to test your bag. You're going to need to test the discs to figure out what works for you. So if there is a hill nearby or a course with a steep uh, downhill uphill, go ahead and throw your bag and figure out what everything does. It's super helpful. It's a lot of fun throwing downhill and it just gives you some really good insight into maybe potentially what, some, what are some slots that you're missing. Um, you may not think you really need a super overstable disc in the bag, but it could be helpful especially if you're going to a course with a lot of downhill holes. So keep that in mind. Now let's go ahead and let's talk about what has become my favorite disc uh, in a long, long time, my favorite approach disc in a long, long time. The Lone Star Disc Armadillo is a one speed, two glide, zero turn, and one fade putt approach disc. Now there are some people out there who putt with the Armadillo, but most people will approach with the armadillo. And there's, and there's one main reason for that. The armadillo is uh, fairly boxy, okay? Think about like a polecat or a berg. It has sort of those that flat side, and it actually has a thumb track similar to like a rhino or in of a pig. And so it has that thumb track, the boxy sides. It's not the most comfortable thing for putting. It's not a bad putter like for actually, you know, putting at the basket but because of its shape and versatility people mainly use it for approaches that's what i prefer to use it for as well today's disc review is brought to you by otb discs i've been working with otb discs for almost three years and it has been awesome awesome stuff working with them if you want to check out today's disc the lone star disc armadillo go ahead and head to otbdiscs.com and use discount code GladiatorDG for free shipping so you can try one of these discs out and figure out how it can fit in your bag. It is such a cool disc, I highly recommend it. As you're hearing in the disc review, I use it on nearly every single hole. So let's go ahead and let's get back to the review. The Armadillo has been in my bag probably for about uh, six months or so. And initially, I was unsure about it. Um, I was like, it feels a little weird. I haven't messed around with it too much with the forehand. And it was like, I don't know I'm liking it. I've seen people throw it. It looks like it works wonders. Took me some time to get used to, but I really wanted to like it. And so I kept it in the bag, kept working on it. And when I say I throw that disc, probably 15 out of 18 holes, I'm not exaggerating. This disc is so good. Now I'm a firm believer in archer and arrow kind of stuff, but the, the armadillo is such a clean disc to throw. There's nothing fancy about it. Yeah, it has a thumb track. Yeah, it's got a little bit of a square shape, so it might feel a little weird initially, but as you use it more, you get really comfortable throwing it because it comes out of the hand so clean. It is a great disc for learning how to approach the basket better. Even in premium plastic, this disc does not slide on the ground. Like, I like to use base plastics when approaching the basket because they stick to the ground better versus premium. And I still use my, I think it's Bravo uh, Armadillo to approach the basket with absolutely zero issues. It slows down and stops right near the basket. I don't have to worry about it going long. This disc is incredibly uh, straight flying, but with a little nose up or a little bit of hyzer, it'll fade very gently, and it does season and beat in a little bit. You can get some turn out of the armadillo since it's so slow and has very little stability to it. But brand new, it will hold a straight line, and so it's a reliable disc out of the box. Like I said, it has a unique hand feel. Spend some time with it. If you don't like it initially, I don't blame you, I felt the same way. So I totally understand if it feels weird in the hand, but if you've tried something like a rhino, or a pig, or a berg, or a polecat, they all have some unique uh, hand feel, they all have some unique rims. Give this a shot if you're wanting to try something new. Now I will say this about the armadillo, it is not overstable. It's not understable, it is neutral. It is a perfect neutral approach disc. So you, if you are looking for something that will fly straight and go exactly where you want it, try out the armadillo today. Uh, <laughs> I know that sounded a little salesy, but I really, really like it. I throw it on nearly every single hole. If I'm inside 200 feet, I'm probably throwing the armadillo, uh, given whatever you know the terrain of the hole is. Um, if it's a pretty straightforward shot, forehand or backhand, I'm probably throwing the armadillo. It is just that good, that reliable, and I like it a lot. And I will say, um, mine's not super, super duper beaten, and I've been throwing it for the last six months as much as I have been. Um, so it holds its stability really well. I have noticed that after a little bit of you know throwing, you know, just in the last six months, throwing it on like three quarters of the holes in a course, Uh, It turns a little bit now when I throw it, um, but it will hold its flight characteristics for so long, which is one of the things that Lone Star Disc prides itself on. So go ahead and check out the armadillo. You can get it at OTB Discs. And if you go to their website, use discount code GLADIATORDG to save yourself some shipping costs. All righty. So we started the show talking about Paige Pierce, Ganon Burr, Paul Macbeth, and Kristen Tatar. And at with you know the open at Austin in context, and I wanted to come back to that tournament and really talk about it as a whole and not just players specifically. The open at Austin, uh, my understanding, replaced the open at Belton last year, which is about forty-five minutes outside of Austin, is what I've heard. And uh, I was under the impression that they were going to be playing some of the more popular courses in the Austin area when I recorded last week's episode. They did not. They played Harvey Penick, I believe is what it was called. And so like you didn't hear me talk about the courses in Austin in last week's episode because I had to edit that out once I realized, oh, I done messed up. So they played Harvey Penick, I believe is the name of the course. And the professionals played great. Like overall, I think they were good. They were entertaining to watch. The scores were close most of the weekend. But the course design was a little, mm, it left a lot to be desired, honestly. I was so excited uh, for day one before I realized that they uh, were not going to be playing some of the more popular courses in Austin. I was so excited But then when I started watching, I was like, oh, Harvey Penick, okay, you know, not that big of a deal. Maybe they're moving around. But then I realized, listening to commentary, no, all weekend, they're going to be at this course. And I stopped watching halfway through round one. It was so boring. It just felt like every single hole looked the same. It was hard to watch. Players weren't even necessarily playing bad, but like, as, as a virtual digital spectator I couldn't tell where OB was I couldn't really tell what shape the hole was it just wasn't good on camera maybe it was fun to play maybe I would enjoy it you know if I was in Austin and I wanted to play an open an open course uh um, like that but on camera nah I'm good But I didn't give up on it. I didn't get to watch uh, Saturday because I was out all day. I wasn't able to watch any. But I made sure to watch on Sunday. And I will say, front nine, still boring. (laughs) It still is boring. But the back nine, far more interesting. One reason for that, trees. There There were a few more obstacles. There were some more wooded holes. It was a little bit more entertaining for me personally. Maybe some of you guys listening to this, maybe some of you liked the more open style golf. That is not my personal preference. I do prefer wooded golf. I don't care if I suck playing a wooded golf course. I could be having the worst day. I could be grumpy and just unhappy on the outside, but I would take that at a wooded course versus those same feelings at an open course. I just don't like them as much. I much rather play a wooded course. Um, I just think they're more fun. And so obviously, I'm going to have those same opinions when I'm watching coverage. But that's just me. And this is my podcast, and I'm going to share that. But that's just me. <laughs> but I do think that the back nine was far more interesting, especially on the final day, you started seeing it. it, it was so good, because it created this pressure. You know, it wasn't like the players could just coast the final few holes if they had the lead. Hole 17, if you wanted to lose one, two, three, four strokes to the field, or if you were in the lead and you lost those strokes to second and third place, not very hard to do. Actually, it's really easy to do, all right? All you gotta do is uh, hit a tree off the tee, or go long of the gap for the dogleg, right? And if you went long of the gap, let's say, like uh, Jessica Weiss did, you have a really pinched off angle. And then you have this tunnel that just has all these like saplings along the side. And so if you're off by just three to four inches, Juliana Corver was talking about how at, at the narrowest part, the gap is only six to eight feet wide. And so you had to have a perfect shot to get through that tunnel, and that tunnel was long. So really easy to get off the fairway there. And depending where you kicked out, it could be a really weird and awkward shot to get back onto the tiny fairway. So 17 was a great, I wouldn't even call it equalizer, all right, Uh, 17 was a great stressor. Similar I guess to like hole 17 at USDGC where like tournaments could be won and definitely lost on that hole. Hole 17 at Harvey Pennock was super cool. Definitely created some backups, but super cool because you know the players were stressed going into the hole. You knew players who were in contention for winning knew what this hole meant, what it could potentially mean for them to win, to lose, to fall out of, you know, podium finish, fall out of top five, fall out of top 10. Great hole, great time to have it in the round if you have a hole like that too early in the round it might knock some people off but other players can kind of maybe mount a little bit of a comeback afterwards but having it as hole 17 is awesome and then hole 18 is super unique because you have the road coming up along the left side you had the ob golf green and so the fairway narrowed to sort of like a uh, a pinch point And then it opened up again going towards the fairway, but you had a bunch of OB wooded area, unkept area that you didn't want to end up in, uh, like Kristen Tatar ended up in. And it was just two holes back to back where the, the potential winner could not take their foot off the gas. They had to keep pushing. They had not necessarily to play aggressively, but they had to focus. If they lost focus for even just one throw, that could open the door for their competition to steal the victory from them. So of the open out Austin, I really liked the last two holes provided for some great drama. I was wondering what was going to happen with the FPO field especially because you had Paige with about a three stroke lead going into hole 17. And it was just one of those where it's like, she's been playing really, really well all weekend, but all it takes is one throw here and she played it well. I still think she took a bogey on 17, but a bogey on 17 is like okay, cool. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. I I think everybody would if they knew, hey, you're only gonna get a bogey on this hole, uh, they would be okay with that. Because that hole was tough. Now, why choose an open course? You know, Austin has a lot of cool courses, and I talked with some people who are either from that area or currently live in that area. And they had some interesting things. I've heard these before about a lot of course selection for the Disc Golf Pro Tour. Um, But basically what I heard is cell coverage, park control, spectators. With live coverage, Disc Golf is in a really interesting spot. Trying to make money by having spectators come, follow some cards around with the VIP pass or have gallery areas where fans with just like a day pass um, can just sit and watch a bunch of different cards come through. I get that you need to have those staging areas, those gallery. You got to have enough space for fans who buy the VIP passes to walk with the cards. But it there's like this balance that they're still trying to figure out I think in having courses that the players find entertaining that is entertaining on coverage and that fans and spectators will enjoy and making it just easy for their job and like I'm not trying I'm really trying to hold back criticism because I know it's not an easy decision especially when you have some really cool and fun courses in the area but it's like these courses aren't really made for the kind of traffic that a Disc Golf Pro Tour event's going to bring. And that's kind of where like park control comes in where it's like, yeah, you have public and private parks, but you also have like, hey, how are we gonna get over the course of a weekend, 5,000 people on this land when it's normally used to maybe having 20 golfers at a time or even 50 golfers at a time if it's a super popular park. So there's a lot of these challenges. And I think one of the ways that the Disc Golf Pro Tour, and they're already starting to do this a little bit more, I've noticed over the last two, three years, is they are not afraid to try new courses in new areas in the country. And I love that. I love that they are willing to try something new and see if the course works out. Not only for engagement and popularity, but also to give players and viewers more of what they want. We've heard a lot of pros talk about how they don't necessarily love open courses. Um, I know Paul, uh, especially Paul McBeth, has been outspoken about that. And I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with them. I think it's great to have an open course. Um, you know, one out of every two or three events because you get to see players really throw the disc far and see some incredible flights and scores. That's why I actually love the preserve up in uh, Minnesota. I think it's great. I love that the course designers there, Kale and the team are like, we don't care how low they shoot. We're not really going to put OB here unless it's absolutely necessary. And I think that's great. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I don't want that to necessarily be every course. And so I don't know if Harvey Pennick will be back on the tour next year. Um, but it'll be interesting to see over the course of this season, some of the new tracks that they're going to use, maybe ones that will get relegated to a silver series like Texas States, which is this upcoming weekend. Um, it'll just be really interesting. I don't have a solution. I mean, I have my opinions, but they're not necessarily solutions. And I think the Disc Golf Pro Tour is doing the best that it can given its current situation. I am excited though to see what they uh, come up with in the future. So with that being said, let's go ahead and let's look over the results from uh, the weekend. And I need to pull that up. Okay, and so with that, let's go over the results for the weekend. We'll start with the MPO. Uh, we'll go through the top 10 real quick. First place, we had Yannon Burr at minus 22. Second place, Simon Lazat at minus 20. Third place, James Proctor and Calvin Heinberg. Calvin playing so, so good this season. James Proctor has been in the hunt, I think, the last two events now, uh, which is awesome to see. They scored minus 19. Fifth place, Austin Turner, minus 18. Haven't seen his name in a while. Good to see him back. Uh, Mason Ford, Ezra Aderhold, Eagle McMahon, Vino Makala uh, it's tied for 6th place at minus 17. Kyle Klein, Corey Ellis, Yuna Hananen, I hope I said that right, and Paul Macbeth tied for 10th at minus 16. So really cool. The ten, play, 10 places, but I think 12 players separated by 6 strokes. And like there were players at minus 15 and 14 and 13. So you have, if I'm looking at the full thing to minus 12, you have 20, you have five players tied for 25th at minus 12. So you have 25 people minimum. No, yeah, 25 people within 10 strokes, 25 MPO players within 10 strokes. Disc golf is awesome right now. It is so, so cool. All right, let's look at FPO. We'll do uh top, top, t- top nine. Or they don't really have a tenth place here because we got a tie for nine. So first place, Paige Pierce at minus five. Second place, Katrina Allen coming through at the end there with a minus three. Tied for third, Jessica Weiss and Missy Gannon, minus two. I thought Missy had a chance going into hole 17. Her and Paige were only a few strokes separated. And Missy collapsed on that hole and Paige survived. Fifth place, we have a tie, Holland Hanley and Krista Tatar at plus one for the weekend. Seventh place, a tie between Evelina Solonan and Ella Hansen at plus two. Ninth place, a tie between Sayananda and Hennablommers at plus three. And in 11th place, Kat merch uh, at plus four. So we had nine strokes separating the top 11 FPO spots, uh, which is awesome. Competition's getting closer. It's improving so much. It is so much fun to watch. And we're seeing a lot of the same names, um, which I just think is really, really cool. Now... I just recall this. I didn't necessarily have this in the notes, but I talked about drive for show, putt for Dove in last week's episode. And I just want to make a quick note about this. You had players that have struggled all season with putting, but have power, excel on this course. Now, yes, they still needed to make putts, but we see some players like Evelina and Henna still finishing top 10. Oh, and Ella. Uh, she struggled here or there with some putting throughout the year, but overall, she's been pretty good. And then you have someone like On Scoggins, who I mentioned specifically last week as a consistent, good putter, good player, makes smart decisions, but doesn't have a ton of power. And I just want to reiterate, I personally believe the FPO field especially is getting to a point where driving and power is, is so important for finishing top 10. Yes, putting can still help you win, but I was looking on Udisc after the event. Own Scoggins had 100% C1X putting and about 68% uh, fairway hits. I think it was something like that. The winners, top, top five, no one had higher than 85% C1X putting in round three, but they all had higher uh, fairway hits, fairway drives than Own Scoggins did, which I thought was really interesting. So I think we're starting to see a transition in the FPO field where you need to have good putting, but putting's not the only thing that's going to elevate you. And we see that in MPO, you need to have great putting. You also need to stay in bounds and hit the fairway. FPO is starting to get to that point where right now we're seeing a little bit of a trade-off with putting for drives, but eventually once they kind of have equilibrium, it's gonna be who can have the highest percentages from here on out. Who can spend an entire weekend 85, 90, 95% C1X and have 70, 80, 90% fairway hits. That's, and I, I predict in the FPO field, maybe not this season, But in the coming years, that's going to be how the cream rises to the top, how the best players in the FPO field uh, are going to separate themselves. And I'm so excited to see that. But I don't want to get too sidetracked here as we uh, come close to wrapping it up. I just want to talk quickly about Texas States. Texas States is in Houston. I think this is for the first time ever, or at least for the first time in a while. It's in Houston. And based on the schedule and the roster, basically, of players who have signed up, it looks like pretty much everyone is going to be there. Now, I know I talked about Harvey Pennick being a, a, an open course. Brock Park is a former golf course turned disc golf course with the idea of giving the best disc golf possible. That's from the disc golf scene, more or less. I paraphrase there. But that's what the disc golf scene uh, event describes it as. The MPO field will be playing the B-Rock Gold. I like Brock, but B-Rock. They'll be playing a gold layout, which my understanding is just a temporary layout made specifically for this event. So that's really cool. But here's what I think is even cooler. The FPO field is playing B-Rock Modified, B-Rock Mod. And the disc golf scene has a specific note where... This layout is specifically made for FPO, and I think that is awesome because we hear FPO players all the time talk about how their layouts just aren't that good, aren't that fun. It's just they make the 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 course designers make the MPO, and then they say, okay, FPO put a short T pad here, 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 and there's not much more like thought put into it. So the fact that FPO is getting a specifically designed course for them, I think is awesome. There are no grip six picks this weekend, so I don't have any picks, but I am excited to see some awesome golf this weekend. I think it's going to be so good. Uh, It is my birthday this weekend, so I don't know how much disc golf I will watch live, but I will most definitely be watching some post-produce, be supporting Jomez and whoever else. I definitely will be watching skins matches. I love OTB skins with GK Pro. So, so good. But if you haven't watched any of those, you really need to check them out. But I don't have any picks for this week, but I am excited. And uh, thank you so much, guys, for listening. Here at Teach Play Disc Golf, there are a couple things I always want to remind my listeners and my viewers. Take the time this week to teach someone how to play, whether that's in person, virtually, over phone, just talking about disc golf, introducing them. Take the time to teach them. This game is so awesome and we all love it for a reason. Share that love and appreciation with someone else. And make sure you go out and play this weekend and have fun. Um, Yes, scores matter, scores count, winning is always fun, but disc golf is also always fun. So go out and play and have fun and never forget guys, have a great round.